More questions than answers, eh? Who would have thought it? Let's get started. Another race for the world's greatest driver, Juan Manuel Fangio. Former world champion Jim Clark leapt into the lead. That's Clark's Lotus going like a bomb. And James Hunt is the world champion by just one single point. By being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. And that is Michael Schumacher ahead, the world champion. To become a four-time world champion, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. That's for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. Max Verstappen is champion of the world. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of F1 in Review 2023. I'm Tom Claiborne and as ever I'm joined by Tristan Fancourt and Angus Gallagher. Today we look back at the Monaco Grand Prix and look forward as well to the Spanish Grand Prix which is coming up now. No more breaks in terms of the weeks or many weeks we had previously. Action after action in terms of the calendar. Here we are. So to start with then... Fans of Formula 1 and sport more generally will be well acquainted with the expression rain stop play and we saw the extremity of that, yeah, the expression at least, last week in Imola but on this occasion did rain save play and what I mean by that is was Sunday's events, the testing conditions that came about towards the end of it, the last 20 laps or so, making it more exciting, saving the race uh, from us fans who were hoping or indeed expecting something to be rather sort of less exciting, more dull? Did it excite the race more than we're expecting? Did the conditions save the race? Our thoughts on this? Definitely saved the race. Driver of the day, the rain. Well, I feel like that's a bit unfair, don't you? That's a bit unfair, maybe. I'll backtrack slightly. As a, as a uh, MVP, there you go, the rain and driver of the day for me, um, if you wanted to know, was a certain Ocon. Yeah, there you go. So, and after the, the comments of Rossi, I feel like I can say that. Um, and hopefully then that will clear the air a bit between those two. But rain was important. And for the first whoa, 50% of the race, maybe, well, it was a bit of a snore fest, bit of a procession. Mm. You can see Verstappen just holding on to the lead keeping those tires nice and comfy those medium tires uh, yeah just he managed to do really well on and alonso dropping back uh, just uh typical monaco procession all the action on saturday and what an action it was and procession on sunday until the rain and then boom suddenly everyone's diving into the pits we've got uh, you know a daring do for aston martin do they put alonso onto the mediums or the inters they risk it with the with the dry tyres, and in fairness to them, I think that was a... Look, it's a daring move. It, it, it was glory or nothing, right? That sort of move. And unfortunately, it didn't play out. But if I'm if I'm going to be brutally honest here, I think Verstappen probably would have kept the lead given the, the timings and things like that. Um, it didn't play out. He managed to stay in second, and it was a pretty... Hey, it was one of those rolls of the dice. And rain gave us that. Gave us the roll of the dice. It, it Rain gave us science falling back the packs. Rain gave us you know everyone spinning round poor oh, oh poor george russell desperately tried to call on the radio let me in front of hamilton <laughs> that sort of thing yeah rain really threw a massive span in the works and also shout out because we're not going to talk about him today nick de Vries, um i think uh he kept his nose clean and demonstrated why he should be in the car thank you well done mate i'm glad he managed to do that so yeah without without the rain it would have been utterly Utterly miserable. A really, really boring race. I, I'm just going to say it, but just a normal procession. And um, I also feel a bit for the man who had his Ferrari F40 stuck on the front of his boat. Uh, because that's not a car that he can now sell saying it's never been in the rain. Which is a bit of a bit of a, a tick mark gone there for uh, reselling um, that Ferrari F40. Also, by the way, just going to digress slightly. Any of you in the, in the, in the market for a new car? Hey? Not, not, not personally, no. Well, no, if you no, were, no. Uh, Fernando Alonso is auctioning off his Ferrari Enzo. So, you know, for me, it was mm. a, you know, do I, is it, you know, new car or everything else in life? Um, yeah, hmm. never going to be afford that. But if anyone is in the in mood for, a, for a, a particularly fancy car, then that one is up for sale. So, yeah, without the rain, it would have been very, very boring. Let me just get my wallet out so I can buy this Enzo off him, this Ferrari Enzo. <laughs> How no big problem. is your wallet? And your savings, yeah, and your savings. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe if we uh, all club together. 
<laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. The race um, was it saved by rain? Yeah, realistically, um, I will still beat the drum for Monaco, but I have to admit that was a rather dull race up to the the points of the rain. The rain kind of s- spiced things up. It made people second guess. It got some varying pit strategies because you had uh, the possibility of people coming in for the wet compound tyres and the inter-compound tyres and some drivers who pitted first for dries and then three laps later were like, oh yeah, that rain that we predicted, let me put the wet tyres on instead when they could have combined it into one stop, (coughs) Alonso. But apart from that, it has to be said that, yeah, the rain did spice things up. It made things more interesting. Cars at risk of going off the circuit just makes things more interesting. Um, high profile ones, science. I thought actually, if you, I thought having seen, um, having watched science's spin again, you know the one where he spun at Mirabeau. Yeah, I have mm-hmm. to say, there's a, de- there's, a, there's a debate. The first thought that came to my head was, has he plonked it off, or has he actually been quite skilled to actually crash it sideways? Now stick with me because if he crashes, mm. if he goes down the escape road, um like facing forwards he has to reverse which ironically is the one thing which these high powered formula one cars struggle at mm-hmm. if he does that he has to reverse but if actually he spun into the barriers got minimal damaged just had a little tap of the barriers and he keeps going again probably not very skilled but that's just a thought i had george mm. russell as well <clears throat> going off at the same place the fact that we had some of these drivers going off and making mistakes is what rain can bring to the action it can bring some unpredictability which it certainly did it also led to an opportunity for Sergio Perez to climb up the field which did not happen as he found himself still mired I, d- I don't think he went above 15th 16th place in the whole race what a miserable weekend for him but yes I'd say that the rain definitely saved the race it, it took it from like a 3 out of 10 to a 6 out of 10 I'd say because it increased some jeopardy and it inc- increased the chances of something happening, even if Max Verstappen did, pardon the expression, reign supreme above yeah. everyone else. <laughs> yeah, I have to agree there. I think that to start with, we were looking at a standard Monaco Grand Prix Sunday race where it was first, starts first, finish, finishes in first, second the same, and third the same. And Indeed, that did, did indeed happen this race. It's fair to say that it wasn't the most interesting in terms of looking at the Saturday grid versus the Sunday finishing grid. But the one good thing about rain when it comes to Monaco is it does intensify or bring out the better features of it quite clearly and for all to see. It's often said that Monaco is about survival, and I do agree with that to a point, but it completely flips it on its head and turns it up to the max, really, when you've got Monaco in dry and then Monaco in wet. And I think we saw that as well. Some of the better drivers bringing through their quality and some drivers who perhaps were dubbed as being good in the wet, perhaps not showing how good they were in the uh, drenched conditions, not looking at anybody aside from maybe the individual who was in Aston Martin car who didn't finish the race, but we'll get on to him <laughs> later. Um, <laughs> but I do oh. still think that Saturday was probably better than Sunday. And what I mean by that is it's all about track positions that really, it's all about who can go and qualify as high as they can. And owing to, you know, let's say a, a clean race without any issues, you're going to do very, very well. Signs was somebody who perhaps didn't uh, stick to that rule, buck the trend, if you will. So, um, yeah, a good Monaco race, better than expected, but still not a special, a classic, anything like that, really. But it's far better than what we're going to have, seemingly, before the rain, which was Alonso and P2 on medium tyres, trying to catch uh, Max Verstappen on a hard in P1, a sort of quasi-cat-and-mouse scenario. But that would have been, in my view, not too dissimilar to, let's say, Miami or races gone by, where you're teased about a potential fight or indeed the intensity going up but it never really flourishes so glad we got some rain and it was good to see yeah some drivers you wouldn't expect high up the grid finishing high up the grid after a good qualification Saturday and um yeah sort of proving people wrong really wow I hmm. yeah proving people wrong is was always nice and I think the thing about Monaco is we always expect it to be a bit of a procession on Sunday so anything else has an elevation almost an automatic elevation it's like wow this this is interesting i need to pay attention yeah. and we can rattle off always the fun stats like 2021 had 
zero on track overtakes and, and at some point even the commentators run out of things to talk about this sort of mm. the, the the level of conversation sort of you know goes down to the point where they start discussing you know oh that fan looks particularly fun there oh yes you know they start but the, the mm. amount of shots of the celebrity starts increasing as the as the yes. race goes <laughs> on and um we all start doing things like tidying our houses and oh yeah oh yeah still going in a circle and do you think that qualifying well qualifying was was spectacular but do you think that that red bulls domination this weekend was ever in doubt and i'm really talking about verstappen given what we know about perez and um do you think there was any moment which where verstappen was going to lose it and just as a as an aside side saying aside sort of qualifying um and that that incredible sector three that he had but during the race do you think there was any moment you thought yeah he might lose it here not during the race, no. I think really Red Bull did very good with their strategy in terms of they didn't panic like other teams did and other drivers did. There were some that were getting on the radio quite quickly saying, right, time for Inter's time for quote-unquote wet tyres. But I think Verstappen was calmer than normal. There was a bit of panic in his voice when it started to get a bit heavy, the rain that is. But I think his team dare I say coached him quite well through that panic to go and say, you've got track condition, if you can go and keep it on the track and... Um, protect your your number one position if you will and you're not you're not in a, a risk of uh clattering into yourself or indeed the hoardings or anybody then just stay as we are and i think that was to his advantage but indeed i suppose when you are in p1 you are not inclined or there's no need to go and take more risk if you're someone like alonso for example you perhaps not have to but you're more inclined to go and roll the dice because you can go and see the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow if you will meanwhile you're Verstappen who has that in your hands and why would you go and do anything silly to jeopardize it so I think as soon as they got underway i.e the first few laps were done then I think it really was difficult to see Red Bull and Verstappen losing this one yes Verstappen is just I've said this before he's quite good isn't he he's quite Mm. good um to go into more detail on that you're right in that he just I think that the phrase that was quoted through parts of the weekend was that he drove like a champion, which is obvious if he's a two-time world champion. But again, to give that more depth, that qualifying lap was absolutely unbelievable, to be honest with you. I think mm. him and Alonso were the two who were just on a different wavelength of qualifying. Maybe Leclerc as well. Maybe Leclerc had an absolute storm of a weekend in terms of qualifying before he then ruined it by blocking Lando Norris in the tunnel, which was a great shame. Mm. But I think that those three just, and we'll, you can give a shout out to Ocon for this specific example, but those three just were a class apart in terms of them being hooked up and aligned with the streets of Monte Carlo. I think for Verstappen to get that pole in a weekend where Alonso was looking like a genuine threat, he was absolutely on it, and it looked like he had pulled out the pole position lap, which would, would have been remarkably Alonso's first pole position since 2012. Last time he got oh, a pole wow. position Nuts. in Formula 1, I was in year 8. That's how long ago it's been. <laughs> but it wasn't to be. It wasn't to be. Verstappen, just absolute barnstorm of a lap in a barnstorm in qualifying. And then, yes, you're right. He sort of, It didn't look like he was going to put a foot wrong on that Sunday race. He just, he just, he was calm. He was he was concise as well. At one point he, he said on the radio how he needed Inters quick because his tyres were... Finish that sentence, how you please. So it, I think it was just classic Verstappen, really. And he just uh, rode out any bumps in the road, any bits of adversity to a T. I'm going to throw a couple of stats at you now. That's now 39 Formula 1 wins for Max Verstappen. So he's just two behind Ayrton Senna in terms of all time. And with that, he overtook Sebastian Vettel as the driver with the most ever wins for Red Bull Racing. So it really shows how much of a dominant force he's become. Yep, uh, but I, I'm going to counter that, actually, just a little bit with my my um, oh, accolade for most consistent driver and, and best driver across the weekend goes to Ocon, actually. Yeah, and I know Verstappen did really well, but what I would say about Ocon this this weekend is Ocon Ocon's drive was not only consistent enough to get him third and his qualifying brilliant enough to allow him to start in that position but unlike Verstappen he had 
very little in the way of incidents. Whatever Adrian Newey and the Red Bull team are making Verstappen's car out of, it is structurally very sound because mm. he collided with the wall, well, uh, three or four times during the race. I, it, he nearly destroyed his car in qualifying when he hit the wall at the very end of Sector 3. Very, very lucky there to, to come off unscathed. Ocon, on the other hand, he kept his nose clean. And if Verstappen had actually damaged his car significantly, then Ocon would have been in the position to, to snap up second. So I know that Verstappen was clearly switched on and rightfully pushing as hard as he could to try and you know make sure that uh, Alonso wasn't going to overtake him. But I would say for Ocon, the fact that we didn't really see him in the, in the race and yet he came up in third. And when I look back as well, um, I, I quickly checked out to see if I could find any sort of collisions he had with the wall. Nothing there. Mm. He, he made his way through traffic. He, he just went, kept going around Monaco in that sort of trance-like state. He was good in the wet, good in the dry. And to me, that that showed off the calibre of driver he can be, which is what makes me so frustrated about Ocon, actually, because he and Tom, I know you've been, I know you have been shouting from the rooftops his quality. Mm-hmm. But we are sometimes seeing it and sometimes we're, we're just not. And this weekend, yeah. Yeah. I think he matched the quality of Verstappen. In fact, it, to, to me, he actually surpassed Verstappen's consistency. He, Verstappen may have had the speed, but consistency award, I think, has to go to Ogham. And further on that point, he had more to do and more to lose as well, because let's not forget before Sainz tumbled down the order, he was uh, very much nibbling at his back win and very much got close and personal to it as well. And bear in mind, it's a big haul of points for Alpine. And I think after the comments from Lauren Rossi, for example, the incident in Australia, there'll be many going, well, why can't this team, why can't these drivers get us some damn points, if you will? And having that position in Monaco with track position being king, you can imagine the expectation expectations weighing heavily on the, the shoulders of Ocon with some people saying well I don't think he's that good so for him to convert that and to have a fla- fairly flawless race as well is to his credit really to keep pace with Alonso and co but I think it does show hope for Alpine that they do have the machinery to go and take on Ferrari wheel to wheel toe to toe it remains to be seen whether they can challenge them in terms of every race and indeed the constructors but I think a very good weekend for them once again and if they can build on this which I realise except is a big question mark over both Ocon and Alpine they could be in for a rather rather good season everyone talks about Aston Martin having a stellar season but I think Alpine are slowly to going through the gears if you will and um, could surprise a few I think that the threat, Lauren Rossi's threats must have uh, shaken Alpine to their core because, yes, they seem to certainly... They turned up in Monaco and they had a, a very quick car. Although I did feel like they did this on, on several weekends last year where they would be doing decent in the season. They turn up and all of a sudden, whoosh, they are like right up to the top immediately just via the characteristics of the circuit. I want to touch back first, though, on before we get into the Alpine discussion, I want to touch back on Tristan's point about Verstappen hitting the wall because one thing I've noticed which I, I feel like I noticed especially this weekend is do you, and I don't know if you guys agree do you think that the cars in recent times seem to be just stronger because I can think of multiple times where drivers hit the wall there was one where Perez lost the car during in the wet through the swimming pool section and he's like properly whacked the barrier with his left hand's wheels and in past years I feel like that that would have been obvious I mean in Recent years, the cars have been made more structurally sound, so that when the wheel is comes into contact with the barrier, it stays attached to the wheel tether, so it doesn't fly off, which is safer for <clears throat> drivers and for crowds. I don't know if you saw the um, the highlights of the Indianapolis 500 at the weekend, but there was one incident where a car got flipped upside down and the wheel completely detached from the tether and went hurtling through a gap between two grandstands into a car park down below but that kind of thing doesn't seem to happen in f1 anymore which of course is brilliant to see from a safety point of view but even there were instances where cars would whack the barrier and wheels would not only stay attached to the tether but they stay on completely and drivers could continue would you say that's fair because i'd almost say that and that might be one of the reasons why we see fewer retirements in a race such as this, because you have less drivers getting damaged that way. Yeah, I would say that it's all about balance in, in Formula One. And we must remember that there has been a massive advancement in terms of just material science and material engineering. We've gone from the the classic torpedo style 
uh, cars of the 1960s and progressed through towards things like fiberglass there's i mean during the the crazy years they were they were even testing things like magnesium bodies because magnesium is really light and um i think that that was just ridiculous because i don't know if you've ever seen what happens with magnesium when it starts to burn but it's uh well it killed multiple people and as we've progressed through the years we've We've experimented with with new materials until sort of carbon fiber sort of came in, and now that we've got well new technologies within carbon fiber, and the way that they weave it, the way that they construct it and reinforce it, lamination materials are, are getting better. Even the resins, right, which you set between the carbon fiber, if you've ever seen it, but it's it's crazy material. It's fantastic, and everything that we that that formula one develops in terms of material is to do two things right firstly it's to make the car lighter because well it's a to to paraphrase lotus's mantra is simplify and add lightness which is a bizarre phrase but hey colin chapman was a bit of a bizarre man um and is also to make it stronger as well and so you know, I'm not a material scientist, but what we what we do know about these new cars is they are using more up to date materials, and everything is designed to do those two things: be stronger and lighter. And that does mean that they can take a bit more of a crunch. Now, there are a couple of things about Monaco that we must remember. And firstly, is it's a slow track, so the amount of energy you're putting into the cars themselves are lower because the top speed is lower. Only thirty percent of the track is held at, at top speed and the second thing you've got to remember is often um you'll see you're hitting you know sideways onto the wheels um at monaco yeah. and that means that you can spread the weight quite nicely and and through the suspension so i feel like the, the slowness of this the cars helps a bit but yeah totally agree that they are always getting stronger and ironically, the most damage this weekend, I reckon, came from Sergio Perez's car being lifted up into the air so that every single oh, one yeah. of us could look at the bottom <laughs> of that car and appreciate Adrian Newey and team's handiwork in terms of the, the tray, the underfloor and the, and the downforce that's producing. Cool. Wasn't that a sight for sore eyes? The secret has been lifted. I don't know if you saw just on the back of that. Toto Wolff, when they lifted the Mercedes, he was like, oh, I really don't like the fact that they lift the cars. You know, this is this is still a problem in Formula One. Anyway, they lift the, the Red Bull and he's like, well, they're just doing their jobs. <laughs> you know, get it off the circuit really quickly. And we just may have a little look. So, yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Damage is definitely less because the safety of the cars is, is getting um, getting better each year. And that's fantastic in my mind because it just keeps the sport alive because people still want to participate in it and without the risk of, well, death, really. Yeah, and I think it's so good for the spectacle as well moving forwards, not only at Monaco, but also other race circuits as well. It felt like only yesterday there'd be some slight contact on lap one and then seemingly because an end plate had been lost or other issues that a race win or potential race winner's uh, race was frankly over really and they were down to P15, P16, P14 and that is still the case. It's not a case that you just, you know, you only go out of a race when you lose a wheel, for example. It is very intricate in terms of the detail, etc. But I think Monaco did show its quality or redeeming factors or features insofar as you could go and kiss the barrier, brush it, or indeed parts of a nose cone, for example, could hit the car in front of you or indeed go underneath its wheel and still be salvageable and still be race-worthy and not being terminal or the end of your race, really. So it'll be interesting to see how this translates into other circuits, but... um. I think it was good to see that we only saw two DNFs and those came from repeat incidents or repeat stresses on the car versus one incident be that big or small really. So um, long may that continue. But uh, I suppose moving on to one of the people who did DNF, I've mentioned him or teased him before, Mr Stroll. Famed for being quite good in the wet but not really the case this weekend. Was it wet or dry? A DNF qualified in P14, incident with himself on the wall in lap 1, incident with Perez just after lap 30 I believe. He was one of the drivers who was, dare I say, screaming out for the Inters or indeed the wet tyres as he called them from very early doors. Bit of a music compiler as well that his teammate finished in P2, the best ever finish for Aston Martin to date. Is it time to dump Stroll Jr.? <laughs> no, no, don't be silly. He'll never get sacked. Never, ever, ever. He's got a lifetime contract. But should he be dumped? Should he be? I mean, he's not awful. <laughs> <laughs> so that's described by the best things in life, right? You know, when you go to a nice restaurant 
Would you recommend? Oh, it's not awful. Yeah, it's not awful. What do we say? Because he's up against Fernando Alonso, who's one of the greatest drivers, not only of his generation, but of any generation. But Alonso is in a new team, and we always say, even with someone like Alonso, we say, oh, you know, it's a new team. We should take time to get up to scratch, you know, because of the new surroundings. We said it with Perez. We said, well, Perez is first year of Red Bull. He's not as quick as Verstappen, but you've got to give him time because he's got the speed within him, and he'll get up to speed eventually. But Alonso is like thrashing him so far what is it 6-0 in qualifying having a quick glance at the results it's 4-0 in races they've both finished in Stroll's shown flashes of pace absolutely but it gets to the point where is he going to end up hindering Aston Martin's quest for second place realistically Mercedes closed the gap to one point this weekend behind Aston Martin that's because they've got two drivers who are being more consistent and who are delivering those top five, top six finishes on a more regular basis. Stroll's only finishing the points three times so far this season, whilst Alonso has not finished below fourth. And Stroll's only finished fourth once. So there is, there is the question of, is he extracting the maximum from that car? Especially since it is extremely quick. And we keep... We keep on saying, I keep on thinking in my head, oh, this Aston Martin like it's going to have a race where it's, it slows down a bit and it's not going to do so well. But then it's still quick. It really is still quick. But then Stroll in Q2 on Saturday finished two thousandths of a second quicker than Valtteri Bottas, who's in an Alfa Romeo. That arguably is not good enough. It helps when your dad runs the team. But at the same time, in many other teams, he'd be in serious trouble right now. He'd be if that was if that was Nick DeVries. <laughs> gone. Nick DeVries oh, yeah. Yeah. Questions. Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah, he'd be he'd be gone. If this was Alpha Tauri, and if I saw a stat earlier, which was something like, don't quote me on this, but because I can't work out the percentage on the spot, but Stroll's only scored like twenty five percent or twenty six percent of Aston Martin's points this season, which is the lowest percentage out of a driver for whom both drivers have scored in the team. So the heat's on a little bit, and he needs to step it up, Step it up, especially with his home race coming up in the foreseeable future as well. Maybe that'll be a good time for him to, to step it up and to, to silence some of the doubters. Yeah, I think it is, dare I say, one of, if not Aston Martin's, greatest chance to do some serious damage to the bigger teams and to cement themselves in that top two or top three. Currently in P2 in the Drivers' Championship, as you say, they're the constructors. But I think they could fall down to as low as fourth. And we've spoken about this before, how important it is to have both drivers pulling in the same direction, consistently scoring points when you're able to do so and when your rivals are lagging behind you. Now they've stolen a march on Mercedes, Ferrari, dare I say Alpine as well, but how long will that march last for? We know that upgrades were coming for Imola when it came to Mercedes. Ferrari as well are showing some signs of being able to go and put it onto the podium at times with both drivers there, I suppose, pulling in the right direction as well and not having bad lucks or temper tantrums or strategy issues or whatever. So the question is, how long can Aston Martin afford to go and have what was McLaren's issue going back where they had one driver doing very well and the other one underperforming. So I think if they don't make serious changes, and I don't know what those changes are going to be when it's the middle of the season, then they're going to go and rue the chances that they've missed really because I personally can't see a scenario where Aston Martin has such a clear shot at P2, a clear chance as a, a win as they do now really because Alonso is doing very well. Some say he's aging like fine wine, but at some point he's going to drop off the edge of a cliff and he's going to be more like Kimi Raikkonen was with uh, Alfa Romeo, for example, or indeed Sebastian Vettel was in this very team in, in years gone by. So I think really if they're serious about becoming a constructor that wants to go and challenge with championships and titles and so on, moving forwards, they're building big bases, investing in a lot of infrastructure. They need to go and have the drivers to boot, really. And one driver who's doing very well, like Alonso's quality, is good. But you need two. And I think if they're not careful, they could fall further down in seasons to come. I could see someone like Alpine, for example, jumping them in the 
sort of short to medium term future because they've got investment there they've got a very good uh, team principal and they've got a skillful young yet also experienced driver pairing that are also scoring points consistently week in week out by one or two races so i think the heat's on and if he doesn't you know do better in the latter half of uh, the season if you will or indeed the last sort of three quarters of the season i think really there may have to be a hard family discussion that's had in the the, the stroll household if you will because it's just not good enough, really. And how long can you have a dead weight in a team that wants to go so high? All right. Well, the Angus's statistic, um, it was 22.5%. Okay, so that's how that's percentage of strolls. Um, hmm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's contribu- contribution to the constructors' points. He's scored 22.5% of their points. I'm going to go up against the grain a little bit, actually, with Stroll. Yes, he may have only scored 22.5% of their points. But my goodness, he is the best teammate on the grid at the moment and that's going to be hard to beat it really is going to be hard to beat does Aston Martin really want another top dog in the team I don't think so did have you seen Alonso and Stroll together they are two peas in a pod Alonso is not only coaching Stroll but to to quote Max Verstappen seems to be life coaching him as well and during the race, did you see how quickly Stroll moved over to let um, Alonso through? He basically just stopped on the track. Ah, oh, go through. Off I go. We keep going round as, as I am. He has been nothing but a perfect teammate this year. Those they they've been towing each other. Alonso has been coaching Stroll. You know how how to get better. And in return, Stroll has been holding back the rest of the pack and. And, and just working together in a way that we haven't seen since Hamilton and Bottas. And yes, okay. Stroll had a bad weekend. He really did. But so did the best of them. Charles Leclerc had a pretty bad weekend. Yeah, he didn't, you know. Yes, he may have ended up in sixth place, but I would say it was really skills. Just a bit of luck, really. And Stroll had a bad weekend. Monaco is difficult. But he is performing for the team like no one else really can in terms of teammates. And I think I think Papa Stroll's going to see that as enough. It may compromise them. It really will. It may compromise them. And to that extent, it's going to be very difficult to argue, of just from a pure points perspective, that he should stay. Okay, there they are. One, well, the two points technically, two points off losing it to, to their second place to Mercedes. Um, but I think Stroll has it in him um, to to pull it back a little bit we are for, you know you can't forget that stroll did get the last podium for williams that's he has the talent there it's not necessarily always bubbling to the top that, that we may expect from alonso hamilton you know even <laughs> for Stappen. but it is under the surface and when you combine that i guess good enough driver um as a rating with beyond spectacular teammate pairing i may say that actually I, th- I, I can see him staying at the team interesting interesting discussion i think that although i would counter your one point tristan by saying that obviously i'm willing to admit that they work well as a team pairing and it's good for alonso and he's the main driver but you mentioned about having a top dog you don't necessarily need a, another top dog alongside Alonso, but you need more than a puppy. Oh, oh yeah. You need... <laughs> whoa! Fight, you need... Fight, uh, fight, wait. <laughs> you, need some, you need something like... Even if you need something... Even something like cute and reliable, but can still bring home the points on a regular basis. Somebody like a... I don't know. Like I've plucked a name out of the air. An Alex Albon, he's cute and reliable, like a like a, a golden retriever or a Labrador, but he still does the job. He's not. He's got the experience. He's not the uh, the puppy that Lance Stroll is, who's just gonna roll around and fall into Alonso's lap. Alex Albon will at least put up a little bit of a fight, but putting up a little bit of a fight would bring in more points for the team and would therefore lead to a greater guarantee of second place in the constructors' championship for Aston Martin. It's all very nice that there's this bromance or whatever between a bromance even though there's what 17 18 years of mm. difference between them there's this bromance between Alonso and Stroll but at the same time i feel like it'll come back it'll come back to bite them at some point hence why i have the the doubts that sort of it like that is is it's working out 
massively well for the team. It's working out quite well at the moment, and it was nice. But once the going gets tough, there's I feel going to be too much of a an easy path for for the. It's it's going to be easy to point the finger at Stroll, and the longer it goes on, the more fair mm-hmm. it will be. I'd even go as far to say, and I know this would be controversial if uh, our past discussions on this driver is anything to go by, if coming into the season and Aston Martin finish fourth, I'd say goodbye, Mr. Stroll. I'm getting in Mr. Mick Schumacher. Our thoughts? Oh, I I don't think Mm. so. I don't think so. I mean, okay, look, yeah, Angus, you're you're absolutely right. right? If... If... Stroll doesn't step up his performance, they well could compromise themselves. And at the moment, I would probably say that that uh, uh, Stroll's maximum points he could have got so far is 72 points. We've had six races so far, and that's 12 points. Uh, I would say he's always going to be one place behind Alonso. So I would say he's got probably, you know, he could have got 70 points, 72 points um, so far. And you know, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to know that that there's much <laughs> that would that would put them, uh, you know, well ahead of um, of third place Mercedes, and again by you know more than sixty points. Okay, and and but with that said, it depends what Aston Martin want from this season. I think they want second place, but I, I well, they might, but also they're not acting like a team that does they they kind of act like a team that wants just a win um and is that going to be good enough for them it may well be if they say yeah actually Joe, you know we want podiums and we want the win then then absolutely fine they've got a good setup if they really want that second place then absolutely they, they they're going to need to change troll but it's not going to happen and is it's just going to be what papa stroll lawrence stroll Lance's dad is willing to accept the team gets because they're nowhere near their maximum potential um, simply because Lance Lance is 45 50 points down from where he really could be and going from one driver had a bit of a torrid time and well not the best season unfair to say signs is there uh, suffering the same way but in the terms of this race it's fair to say that it's a chance missed be that from himself or his team starting in P4 fell down to P8 a good qualifying there, but um, yeah, there's a bit of tension on the radio, wasn't there, between the driver and the paddock in terms of when to pit, how to pit, what times to pit for. What do we make of, I suppose, some public tension there between driver in terms of what they want to do, and then I suppose the team saying back, no, actually, we were correct. Tom, was it warranted what science said over the radio and his anger? I think it was pent-up anger. I don't think it was just about Monaco. I think it was about, if we're being honest, Sainz has been there for, what, a season plus at this point. It's a continuation, really, of... You could either say poor judgment calls if you're on the side of Sainz, or you could go and say if you're being fair, but then also realistic about the Ferrari paddock. Poor communication, because I think it was the right decision, ultimately, to do what they did, to be a bit more conservative after Stroll after Sainz made a few issues for himself. I mean, let's not forget the stupid move, really, born out of impatience against Ocon, where he damaged his front wing, put him and the team on the back foot there. So I think, really, they were just trying to go and be a bit more conservative and bank the points they had. And we saw how well Mercedes were doing or how equal they were to Ferrari. We saw how Ferrari were struggling versus Alpine. So I think it was the right decision, but I think it should have been communicated a bit better. And I think... The fact that this has happened again after a similar situation happened in Saudi, i.e. Ferrari had track position, but then were jumped for by Mercedes when it came to strategy, I think that's just a case of both drivers getting a bit cheesed off, for want of a better phrase, really. But there's a time and a place, and I didn't really expect it from Sainz. I thought he was a bit of a, dare I say, a bit of a more cool operator, or chill operator, to use his words, really. So, yeah, I was a bit surprised, but... I mean, we've ranted and raved so much about the faux pas of Ferrari be that, the way they've spoken about things or indeed done things. So I don't think it's just this situation, this incident really, that's born out of that response. But do you agree or do you think actually it was all about, I have P4, I want P4, and there it is slipping away from me drastically? I think context is definitely key to this particular incident because whilst if you didn't watch the Monaco Grand Prix and you just 
looked at the results it, it might sound um it might it might look a bit weird with with science ending up wow so far back in eighth and behind charles but the i think what the issue was yet again the driver not perhaps getting all the information which is really typical ferrari at the moment isn't it and as mm. you said that just now tom and i completely agree with that it is poor communication and as you say not not what we expect from from science the issue they had during the race was science was was falling back a bit and didn't have the performance because he damages front wing on Ocon, and mercedes behind smelt blood and and hamilton was putting in some excellent lap times and so he pits on lap 15 basically to pull the undercut and science's strategy was basically try and go ahead you know push forward and try and get as deep into the into the race as possible so that you know he could um he could try and beat the rain and unfortunately his lap times just were not good enough compared to hamilton who who had now pitted and so they pulled him on lap 21 and when science came out hamilton was only about a second behind him which if he'd left it another lap or another two laps hamilton well could well have got past because he'd made up that time on those newer fresher tires and then held on to the end this is yet again the issue with monaco with the fact if another driver gets in front of you you can you they could just be slow and there's nothing you can do about it and, and so Science gets on the radio and says, Ah, oh, I told you not to pit me now. I told you we were catching Ocon. And, and they say, No, 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 Hamilton behind. It's Hamilton who's only a second behind. And he goes, I don't care about Hamilton. And he should care about Hamilton. He needed to care about Hamilton because unfortunately he compromised his own race and he couldn't go as deep as he wanted to. And that was, I think, just embarrassing. It was embarrassing for the both of them. It's embarrassing for Ferrari, and Ferrari do not like being embarrassed, you know, on the radio. Oh, no, 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 no. And it was embarrassing for science, because, as you say, Tommy, it was sort of like an eruption of the pent-up anger that I think both Charles and science have been feeling this, well, this year, last year, mistake after mistake, and no communication. He said, this is the thing that I've been talking about. So clearly, he's been talking about this in the uh, in the driver's a pre-race briefing with Ferrari and maybe the the post-race debrief as well. Uh, it just seems to me like both drivers at Ferrari are unhappy at the moment, and we haven't seen them laughing and smiling for a very long time, which is weird because they're both driving for what they say is their dream team. But I don't know. Do you think Angus? It's it's one of those age-old dilemmas of never meet your heroes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they do just seem to be. Going through a pretty nightmarish time. I, I I get the general feeling that Ferrari once again messed up again this weekend. <laughs> I haven't said that before, lol. But from the what I mentioned earlier in qualifying, where where the team chose to be uh, chose to tell Leclerc about the Stappen's sector times and his timing gaps to Leclerc, rather than telling him there was a fast approaching. Beautifully liveried McLaren, far, uh, coming up behind him in the tunnel, costing him three places on the grid at the one circuit where track position is paramount. Therefore, dropping him from third to sixth, making his life harder for the Sunday, and then it just kind of snowballed for Ferrari with yeah, science getting angry. I think I've, I agree with with Tom in that I hadn't really considered the point about the whole pent up anger, but it makes sense. I mean, if if you'd been through what Leclerc and Science had been through in terms of frustration at missed opportunities, then you'd be pretty angry for based on the past year and a year and a bit at least they've been with the team. And then, yeah, keeping them out on the mediums in those conditions, those wet conditions, not not ideal. Um, if you if you if you just look, if you look at the sky, you maybe would have gone ah, might need wet tires here, might want to change those. But they persisted a bit too long with that. And their reward was only 6th and 8th, which just sort of summed up a bit of a miserable weekend for Ferrari. In a weekend where they could have really put pressure on Mercedes and Aston Martin and closed the gap, they find themselves still a bit far behind, 30 points behind. And yeah, it's just... It leads leads from our discussion last week of Lewis Hamilton going to Ferrari. He must look at that. If If he was looking at it right now, he'd be thinking, why would I go there? It just seems to be a whole load of operational errors still. 
this big revamp that Fred Vasseur is promising, yes, early days, don't get me wrong, but that still hasn't had much of an impact so far. And they've also got one of their, lest we forget, we've also, something which I don't think we've discussed too much on the podcast yet, because but it was recent news about how Laurent Mekis, apologies if I've butchered his name there, but he is one of Ferrari's chief engineering directors and he is leaving the team at the end of 2023 to replace Franz Tost as the team principal of Alpha Tauri, thereby meaning that Ferrari lose another one of their key personnel. To me, it just seems that things are quite... The word that I think of is stagnant at yep. Ferrari. Things are just a bit stagnant. They're not really going places. And whilst I don't see them dropping lower than fourth this season, I think Alpine sure had a, have had a resurgence this past weekend and they had a brilliant weekend, but I can't see them bridging that gap to Ferrari. I can see them fighting with Ferrari at multiple races, but I can't see them bridging that gap in the point standings. Mm-hmm. Ferrari just, yeah, they they just appear stagnant. Like they're not really going anywhere. They're just a bit in the doldrums. And as the the clock keeps ticking, and it's now fifteen years since they won the constructors' championship, and that's only going to get bigger, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It just seems that they're not really going places. And I think that, yeah, science is. Can we call it an outburst? I guess we can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was, yeah, it was brought it was broadcast on the world feed as well. That outburst kind of summed up probably what uh, he's feeling, what Ferrari fans are feeling as well, as it stands. Yeah, definitely. I think we saw the beginnings of that, or perhaps the the ability that colour signs could erupt when a situation didn't go his way and where something was either A, not communicated well, or B, not handled very well, when I think it was Silverstone where he won that race. And if memory serves me correctly, the broad strokes of the Ferrari plan was... We'll have Sainz on the fresh tyres, but keep him in P2. Meanwhile, we'll have Leclerc on the old hards. And the ambition or aim for Sainz is to go and keep the charging uh, Perez and indeed Hamilton behind him so that the... So then the... Um, sorry, so funny. Leclerc can then go and win the race despite him being on older tyres. And obviously Sainz was like, please don't do this. We can't do this. Disobeyed orders. But you could just see there how, I suppose, things weren't being communicated things that make sense to the drivers as well. And as we say there, we've been promised this grand reset, if you will, for Ferrari. I'm guessing as well, assurances were given when Sainz came into the team. Assurances, we're told, are being given now to Leclerc about a new contract. And by extension, Sainz would have heard about those, at least in the broad brushstrokes, at the very least from murmurings around the paddock, really, about what the team is going to do and how they're going to improve. So to then go into a race weekend after a long break where people could take stock, reassess, etc. And then the same thing happens, must really twist the knife. And I suppose if you're looking at personnel leaving to go to Alpha Tari and others, there's well two ways you can judge that, really. You can either be more optimistic about that or be, let's say, I suppose, more lighthearted about it and think, oh, well, you know, it's not too dissimilar to James Val's leaving Mercedes and then going to Williams. That is true. That is possible. But let's remember that Mercedes have peaked won many championships in many years and it's time for James Vals to step out from the shadows, if you will, and take the helm of a new team. So in my view, it's more of a case of maybe within the Ferrari ranks themselves, be that higher up, people are thinking to themselves, well, this grand change we've been told about for so many times by so many different people isn't really happening. So I might as well up six and try and make a better life for myself and lead a team, albeit Alpha Tauri. The whole episode with the, the Ferrari... Uh, that instant you realize you reminded me of at Silverstone. It, I think it just sums up Ferrari's troubles with operational issues. It also reminds me of just to we just to make make fun of them, I guess a little bit more. It always reminds me of when. Do you remember when? At, um, I think this beautifully sums up Ferrari of the last two three years in a nutshell. When Leclerc was leading the race in, I want to say Turkey a couple of years ago, and it was that race where there was. It was changeable conditions, and they were debating whether to go on wet or dry tyres. And he was—he uh, asked on the radio. It was like ten laps to go, and he asked on—he was debating about pitting, and he asked on the radio, "Where do I, where do I finish if I have this pace?" Oh, and yeah. he was leading, and the engineer responded, "If you stay where you are, you will finish P1." <laughs> <laughs> Which yes. I think, I think, sums up Ferrari <laughs> over the last few years. 
and we laugh about it but the legacy of some of that is still there with calls like mm. this weekend with the medium tyres and the wet or like not providing a lookout to Leclerc and traffic and also the circuit where traffic is notoriously awful to navigate because 20 cars on that one circuit which is only what three kilometres long is a nightmare so I think you just see it's still it's still going on you think when will it ever be solved and you can see why the drivers are angry yeah, but to be to be clear, Ferrari made the right call this weekend, and it's really easy to to, to say ah jokes on them they didn't actually. What my point was is they did make the right call. They did make sure that Mercedes didn't undercut them, and then Sainz kind of made his own problems after that. He he did lock up, and he did spin, and he did fall backwards, and he did get angry, and driving in anger caused him the issues. Now, dr- the anger stemmed from the problems of that you've just highlighted there, all those wonderful issues and the one things we like to poke fun of. But before we conclude this, I'd like to just, just bring us back to reality for Monaco, which is Ferrari, I think, are learning. And well, at the very least, they learned this weekend because they made the right call. Science compromised himself, which meant they had to defend from the Mercedes, which made Science angry. And that led to everything else, I think, after that and then the wet weather and stuff like that. Now, I think what you've got to remember is at the time, they didn't know it was going to necessarily rain. And so if science had stayed in position and hadn't pitted, then yes, everyone would have had to pit anyway. So, but that's hindsight. At the time, Ferrari made the right call. There was a, there was a real and actual threat from Mercedes, which they covered. So maybe, maybe they're going in the right direction. Fred is waving his magic wand and in a year's time we'll be laughing about how the fact that Ferrari have gone from zero to hero. Green shoots and silver linings I guess but yes work to do point taken. And on that note that seems that's all we've got time for in terms of episode 15 of F1 in Review 2023. Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end of this episode be that on your preferred podcast provider or indeed elsewhere. A reminder, we are on TikTok and Twitter, our handle being F1 in Review, capital F, all one word, of course. And up next, as said throughout this uh, episode of F1 in Review, Spain is next. Spain is coming this weekend. Qualifying, if you're watching, observing, listening or anything else, when it comes to Saturday, that's 3pm, it starts then. And then the race is on Sunday, of course, once again, if you're in the UK, British summertime, that being 2pm. So fingers crossed for a good race. If the weather forecast is going to hold true, heavy rain for the race, heavy rain going from before to indeed after things should wrap up. So hopefully it'll spice things up, but not too much rain if Italy or indeed Imola is anything to go by. Thank you very much for listening though, and we'll be back next week to discuss what happened or indeed didn't happen in the Grand Prix to come. Until next time, thank you very much and we'll see you next week.